Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look back on an eventful 2022 for budget and economic policy and ask what it all means for the policy debates of 2023. It was a challenging year that included two things we haven't seen in a long time, a ground war in Europe and the highest inflation since the early 1980s. So I asked the Concord staff, what surprised us most about 2022? What economic developments are of most concern as we transition to 2023? And given that last year was our 30th anniversary and we were all over the country doing events, what was the feedback from the field and particularly with the college campuses we visited? And then uh, we'll ask, are we better off or worse from a fiscal point of view than we were a year ago? And finally, we'll get some input from our intern um, about how the younger generation views the fiscal challenge. Then in our last segment, we'll conclude the program with a seasonally appropriate discussion of the two Santa Claus theory of federal budgeting. And we'll ask, is there actually a third Santa Claus? I'll, uh, I'll discuss that with Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. Well, joining me in the first part of the program are the entire Concord Coalition staff, including Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, Communications Director Av Harris, National Field Director Phil Smith, and two voices we don't hear from that often on Facing the Future, Concord's Deputy Director Chris Culligan and our intern Kyle Duffy of American University. And so, Tori, Steve, Phil, Av, Chris, and Kyle, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Great, great to be here. Yes, you, it's Bob. great great to have all of this wisdom, this assembled wisdom. We will summarize 2022, and we will preview 2023, and of course, we'll get it right. I want to begin, <laughs> since, this show, since this show is called Facing the Future, and since it's... Uh, uh, housed at a WKXL radio in New Hampshire. I am going to start with Kyle Duffy, who is our intern at American University. I like to call him our chief intern because mm. everybody's <laughs> chief something here at the Concord Coalition. And, and just ask, uh, Kyle, not to put you on the spot, but speaking for America's youth, <laughs> how, we're, we're trying to face the future, but what does the future think of us? I mean, how, how do people in your generation think about fiscal policy in the nation's uh, future? When you think about fiscal policy and the debt specifically, for a lot of America's youth, it feels so intangible as an issue. And I think that's why there's the generational gap. You know, you all were able to see, you know, when we had a budget surplus uh, at one point, and that feels very realistic to you all. But for my generation, it's not really something that's ever happened. And it's so consistent that we have you know, uh, over the top deficit spending. And we don't really realize that there's options as a collective. Um, so it's really interesting to look at 
if we have that conversation, how do we get the youth involved because it feels so unreal? So at the very least, we need to present options and an understanding of, okay, we actually do have choices to make solutions to the problem. And I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes from. It feels like there is no solution because the problem isn't all that recognized because we've never been familiar with it uh, outside of what it currently exists as. There was a question though, Kyle, uh, because it was raised by one of the people we talked to on Facing the Future who interacts with a lot of uh, young people. And he's saying that this generation has a concept of debt uh, a real concept of debt uh, that maybe previous generations didn't because, you know, because of the student loan problem. Do you, do you, do you think that that's uh, accurate or do you, do you find that with you and people in your generation that you, you're really conscious of debt because of student loan stuff? I think we're, we're very hyper aware about the consequences of uh, the individual debt and a lot of the debt crisis that our generation has experienced through college debt. And I don't think that quite translates over to, you know, whatever it may be in terms of the national debt. But I think that's one of the windows where we can take a look and get people involved on an issue like this, because at the very least, uh, the justice that can be done to the issue is have a conversation and uh, present people those solutions in a way that they might not have seen before. Um, because just like college debt, uh, the national debt, they both feel uh, very overwhelming in a way uh, that our generation has felt a heavy burden of a lot. So like I said, it, it feels unrealistic to achieve some of those things, but there needs to be a conversation had about it at the very least. One, one, one last question before we let you go on your Christmas break <laughs> <laughs> is we all look to the youth of America to help solve the deep divisions of partisanship and dysfunction that uh, I'll speak for the baby boomers. I won't speak for the um, Gen Xers on the on the show. But God, we've sort of screwed up in some of these ways. And do you find that there's less intense instinctive partisanship among younger people? I think there is more desire to to find solutions, not across party lines, but just across ideological thought. Um, I I go to a very political school, and I think there is hope for engaging on certain issues. I think at the same time, there's polarization. Uh, I think there's more than there may have used to be um, on both ends. However, I think there is a possibility for that kind of compromise because we've seen um, a lot of the consequences, Bob, like you said, you know, there's been some screw ups in the past that have uh, laid a heavy burden on us as a generation and the youth. And we're starting to see um, the serious consequences of those that are going to impact us and our future. So. There's there's definitely a, a desire to to find these solutions because we feel like we're we're dug in deep already. So uh, infighting doesn't do us a whole lot of good at this point, in my opinion. Well, if you can speak for the youth of America, I'll speak for the uh, baby boomers and say I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is this isn't how I thought would be handing off. But anyway, no. um, Kyle, thank you, um, uh, Tori. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. Looking, looking back on this year, this, uh, you know, year of 2022 rushing to an end, what were the most surprising budget or policy developments for you? Mm -hmm. So in thinking about this question, there, there are literally three things that made my jaw drop this year. <laughs> And they tend to like conflict with one another, which I, I can't reconcile that, but here we go. 
Um, I think the first thing that made my jaw drop was the the resurrection of the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, we went all year long <laughs> where, you know, reconciliation was alive. It was a dead. It was alive. It was dead. Then it was really dead. And then, you know, the Senate uh, got together in a bipartisan way to do the CHIPS Act, you know, and McConnell's like, oh, 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 oh. and then next thing you know, bam, like two days later, Schumer and, and Manchin have a deal on the Inflation Reduction Act and boom, there's the, 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 the reconciliation bill. Um, that literally made my jaw drop. But not, not long after that, my jaw dropped further when President Biden announced the, the the student loan debt relief bill because he, to such great fanfare, went to say that the Inflation Reduction Act was paid for and didn't increase the deficit and they were being fiscally responsible. And then, boom, right out of the gate, right afterwards, you know, unilaterally with executive authority, made all these big, huge changes uh, for for student loan debt repayment. Um, so that just I mean, they just stepped all over their message with the Inflation Reduction Act, not to mention did something that I think uh, is not constitutional. I, I'm, be, I'm eager to hear what the Supreme Court has to say later next year, um, but I think what the executive branch is doing unilaterally on the student loan debt uh, relief is is, uh, is was a shocker. And I think the last thing, and this is really sort of what's what's counterintuitive to the first two, I am really surprised that the Democrats didn't take advantage of the opportunity for a second reconciliation bill. I mean, they had unilateral control of the House, the Senate, and the White House for two years, which would have given them two budget resolutions, which would have given them two reconciliation bills to pass stuff without votes from Republicans. And they only used one. Um, and I am really, I, that was a huge missed opportunity to do something, for example, on the debt limit. Um, or uh, something on the child tax credit that's really important to Democrats. So I'm really surprised that they could not get their conference together aligned and in agreement to do a second reconciliation bill and in a more timely fashion. I mean, I think trying to squeeze that second reconciliation bill into these last few weeks before Christmas was a ridiculous idea. Um, but I'm really surprised that they did not use that that second budget resolution, second reconciliation bill to take care of some of their top priorities. Yeah, they may. Uh, they're probably regretting that already, uh, having to do with the, the debt limit anyway. Uh, Steve, bringing in some of the economic developments here, what gives you the most concern about 2023? I mean, you can include economic uh, developments, uh, that being your... <laughs> Forte, and we can even, should you want to, expand into Fed policy, though that's not what we usually do. We usually do fiscal policy, but it's difficult these days not to talk about monetary policy uh, and, and when you're talking about fiscal policy. So I know that I, we could talk about inflation and what surprised you. It surprised almost everybody, but it didn't surprise you. So I want to give you credit for that. And so you don't have to take credit for it yourself. But uh, the, the administration, the Fed, and yours truly were all thinking that this was going to be a temporary phenomenon. The transitory was, was the word. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. But um, so what, uh, having been so prescient, what do you think about 2023? If you recall, at the beginning of 2022, uh, we had two quarters of, of roughly negative growth. So the first, the first half of 2022, people were saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe we're going to have a recession. 
And normally when you have a recession, the Fed comes in and lowers interest rates to try to prevent that. Well, the Fed didn't really lower interest rates, but we didn't have a recession, which might appear to be perplexing to some people. But that sort of reinforces the point I've been making all along is that the Fed has been overly accommodative for, for so long that even when they're starting to tighten monetary policy, they're still being accommodated. I mean, the, the, the Fed balance sheet was up around $9 trillion. That really didn't start to roll off until this summer. They, they raised interest rates a few times, but when you compare the interest rate to the inflation rate, we have negative real interest rates. And despite you know four, now five uh, interest rate increases by the Fed, we still have real negative interest rates. The Fed balance sheet is coming down very slowly. So again, you can argue that the Fed has remained, despite all the discussion that, oh, the Fed's tightening and oh, it's gonna cause a recession. Well, we didn't have a recession. The economy rebounded. And to me, that indicates the Fed is not really as tight as people think it is. And that's what's scary about moving into next year because the financial markets are convinced that the Fed is gonna stop at about 5%. So they're going to raise the Fed funds rate up to around 5% next year, and they're going to hold it there, and then they're going to start lowering the interest rate again. And I don't see that happening. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. I hope that doesn't happen, because if it does, I don't think the Fed is ever going to cure inflation. I think the Fed's going to have to go over 5%, and they're going to have to hold it there. Uh, so it'll be above 5% through the end of next year. And the unemployment rate as a result is going to go up and it's likely to cause a recession. But the only alternative to that is for the Fed to do what the financial markets think it's going to do, which is to not raise rates so high and to bring them down sooner. And we're going to miss the uh, rise in unemployment, but we're also going to uh, not, um, not get inflation under control. And I think that that you know, if we're going to believe Jay Powell, he says that that's their job number one, and I hope he's right, and I hope he sticks to it. But we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. Um. Yeah, I think that that's that's probably the big question that is uh, hanging over, like the sword of Damocles. Um, Phil, I want to turn to you. Um, being our field director. You spent uh, this past year celebrating our 30th anniversary all over the country, sometimes in person, sometimes virtual, doing uh, campus events. Um, what, the, what, I, just in terms of attitudes, I just kind of like to, what, what did you find? I mean, what, what, what were the common themes that you found in all those many, many events that you did around the country? Well, what I found with the Concord Coalition traveling from California to Florida and all the way up to New England and lots of places in between was that people are really, really feeling the things that Steve and Tori just talked about, right? Uh, and uh, they, were, they were feeling inflation. Uh, they would, you know, you heard people complaining, particularly in the big cities, about housing costs. Uh, heard lots of complaints about uh, high gas prices and so forth. So the state of the economy this year was so different than the past history of the Concord Coalition, right? We've been around for 30 years, and we often say, looking back to the 1990s when we were predicting out in the future, you know, if there were two things that were really going to be surprised about, it would be that inflation and interest rates would stay so low over that time period. And we had a lot of 
I'll, I'll be candid. We had a lot of snake oil salesmen on both sides, right? On the, on the extremes of both sides that were telling us that, oh, we, there are no repercussions to fiscal policy. You know, you can do anything you want. And, uh, and for the first time in a long time, as Kyle was saying earlier, uh, older people remember this, you know, when you actually can feel what's happening in the economy. So I think that was the biggest difference this year is the, is the feelings people had for the economy. But in terms of solutions for the future, it was always so fascinating to engage with people because once you uh, take the myths off the table, and that's one of the chief things we do at the Concord Coalition, right, is we extinguish myths. And unfortunately, there are a lot of them out there when it comes to budget policy. But once you extinguish the big myths um, and you get people focused on what potential solutions are, they really will engage and you can have some really terrific discussions. And that's what we did this year across the country. Av, do you think, I mean, you, you follow this stuff pretty closely and you listen to every Facing the Future program because you have to. <laughs> for, those, for those that don't know, I mean, Av Harris is the one who puts the uh, the shows together, makes any edits that need to be made and writes up the programs and uh, thus becomes uh, not just our communications director, but a subliminal expert in policy <laughs> as he writes all this stuff up. Um, do you think that we're in a better place at the end of 2022 fiscally than we were at 2021? Well, there's no right answer here. I'm just yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's it's. I think in some ways yes, and in some ways no. I'll start with the the no part, which is that uh, in terms of Congress, we seem to be repeating some of the same patterns uh, that that have been in place for quite a while. As people got used to really low interest rates you know, running up deficit spending, whether that's in the form of uh, tax cuts without offsets or spending programs that are so important we can't possibly pay for them. Um, so that seems to be continuing. Um, and even now, as we talk about what's gonna end up in the final uh, omnibus package before the end of the year and before uh, Democrats hand control of the House over to Republicans, um, there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things in there that people want that are priorities that, uh, that we all know are, are, are not going to be paid for. So, so in terms of the actual fiscal behavior of those in Congress, I would say we're not in a better place because every day it continues to get worse. However, what I will say is there does seem to be more of a realization, and that's not just made by those who've been on our program, but with interest rates rising, you know, with the potential for a, a recession that's not totally, you know, inevitable, um, and with some of the economic consequences that are going to come from that, I do think that there is an opportunity for people to start becoming aware again of the cost of carrying some of this debt, that the uh, the debt service payments in the federal budget are going to climb significantly. And that might start to give people pause about, okay, if we want this program, how are we going to pay for it? So I'll, I'll relate back to what Tori said in that the final version of what used to be called Build Back Better came out as this Inflation Reduction Act. Um, not sure it really had anything to do with reducing inflation. <laughs> However, um, what was encouraging was that there was, I'll say, you know, some kind of serious effort, including 
some revenue pieces that were uh, that were in there that um, that actually, you know, again, in the couple of days in the 48 hours before the student loan forgiveness thing was announced, uh, we were actually looking at a potential deficit reduction of somewhere in the order of what, $300 billion over the next uh, 10 years or so. Of course, that was all erased uh, a couple of days later when the Biden administration announced <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> For forgive up to a trillion dollars worth of, uh, of of student loan debt, but what what I'll say is it's a positive sign for the way in which people are going to be potentially crafting legislation in the future, um, you know, and other, um, you know, federal programs. I hope to see more of it, and I think that would be good. Um, and I hope it also opens the door to some of these other plausible, you know, credible revenue options that would bring in the type of revenue we need. I think I think we're going to be more focused on the conversation about Social Security and Medicare because the clock is ticking. We don't have a ton of time um, before the trust funds uh, for those programs go insolvent. Um, and I, I think that there, to me, what gives me hope about that is that I think there is some bipartisan consensus on some of these things. And, and even with Republicans controlling the House, Democrats, controlling the Senate. And in the last um, couple of years of this uh, first term of the Biden administration, we'll see if there's another one, but that there might be a window of opportunity to actually move some things um, in, in the fiscal space. And also, I, I think I'm very encouraged to see some bipartisan talk about some immigration, uh, potential immigration reforms. I've seen a couple of things um, just to, over in the last few weeks since the election that give me some signs of hope that there are potentially some windows of opportunity with the particular dynamics uh, in, in, in Congress. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And today, the Concord Coalition staff is looking back on fiscal policy in 2022 and what might be coming up in 2023. So stay with us. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and today the Concord Coalition staff is looking back on budget and economic policy in 2022 and looking ahead to 2023. And, uh, Av, before we cut off, I, I cut you off in mid-sentence, so go ahead and pick it up. I was just going to say, uh, we were talking about things that surprised us in, uh, in 2022. So here's how I'll put it. I think the thing that surprised me the most was that my prediction about the election outcome turned out to be so accurate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I had said, on this program a year ago, when we talked about the elections coming up in the midterms, everybody was saying, oh, it's going to be just a bloodbath, red wave, you know, Republicans are going to win big like they did in 2010 and 2014. And at the time, the Supreme Court hadn't decided the Dobbs case, the Mississippi uh, abortion case. And I, th I think I said something like, well, keep an eye on that case, because if the Supreme Court decides to overturn Roe versus Wade and, you know, takes away this federal abortion protection uh, nationwide, then uh, I think all bets are off. I think uh, it's a all hell breaks loose uh, scenario. People are going to be really upset about that. Of course, that happened. And then people did uh, get, get really angry about it. And it looked for a while like in the, I would say, late summer, early fall, right around the time of the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act passing and right around the time of there was a string of uh, legislative uh, achievements, the CHIPS Act and um, and and then the student loan thing, which, you know, we didn't we don't really like much, but went over pretty big uh, with with Kyle's generation. Um 
that it looked like, wow, the Democrats might actually do okay. And then, of course, gas prices started going up. Uh, you know, the OPEC did this thing where they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't cut uh, uh, production. And so there were some other factors. And then it looked like the red wave was going to come again. It ended up um, being a kind of a, a mixed bag. You know, Dems uh, expanded their lead in the Senate and the House won. The, the Republicans won the House, but not by much. Um, and so I, I ended up being surprised because I kind of bought into the hysteria about about the red wave, but um, you know, I think what that shows us for looking ahead at 2023 is, I mean, my big takeaway from this election is that the moderates won, mm. the, you know, on both sides. Because you had, uh, if if the candidates were in some swing states were too far to the left, progressive, the Republicans did okay in the, in those states, and and a lot of these candidates, the election deniers lost. So. So I feel like the moderates are empowered somewhat in Congress going forward. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean opportunity to get some things done in a bipartisan way that may not have existed before? Time will tell. Does, what does it mean for, for Kevin McCarthy? Does he become speaker? Uh, or is this doomsday scenario that people are talking about where a number of Republicans join him with Democrats to choose some other acceptable alternative and not get something that, you know, the, the far right people, the Freedom Caucus people, if you want to call them that, um, you know, want for speaker? We don't know. We're, we're going to have to wait and see. I'm, I choose to be optimistic that there is some cooperative opportunities. Well, one of the things that uh, I I have been focused on is whether we can do anything through quote unquote regular order and uh, recently wrote a perhaps naive but somewhat optimistic, uh, encouraging op-ed in in the Hill saying that, you know, there are two things that they have to do. One is pass appropriation bills and one is to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, They don't have to do any of the other stuff, but you have to keep the government open uh, and you have to pay the bills. So, um, uh, Chris, I know that uh, you know you you have some concerns about whether or not even even if you could think about compromise uh, between the two parties, there are some internal things going on just because of uh, retirements and and you know people switching uh, from one party to the other being in control that are going to present challenges in the coming year. Yeah, yeah. I think to have regular order, you sort of have to have you know kind of regular leadership and and regular uh, kind of uh, approach to uh, uh, to legislation. Kind of uh, going back to what Tory said earlier, uh, you know the the Democrats, with all of you know everything in their favor, still weren't able to do more than you know the one. Uh, reconciliation budget bill. They could have done two. Um, and that was with a very, very strong leader in the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, who, you know, I think by all accounts is somebody who who was able to always keep her troops together and knew where the votes were and always worked hard. And she did things like, you know, the ACA and a few other things that just you know, other people thought they wasn't going to happen. Well, she's gone now, uh, and the new leader is going to be tested. Uh, I think Jeffries, uh, by all accounts, the Repub- uh, the Democrats are very happy with him. They're very happy that they made that choice, but we don't know what kind of a leader he's going to be. To Ov's point, maybe there are moderates in that party that uh, that are going to present more of a problem for a party that has 
you know, had to kind of bend left uh, in recent years. On the other side, you've got a situation where there are Republican moderates who have stepped up uh, in uh, shutting down things like this idea that the uh, uh, the next speaker in the House can be uh, uh, summarily dismissed at for basically any cause or no cause. Uh, which is seen as a as a uh, a boost for uh, for Kevin McCarthy, but the point being that he himself has got a lot of work he has to do um, in order to keep that uh, the the schisms in the Republican Party from widening. Um, and I think the the one other factor there um, that is it is more it's the bicameral relationship between. Uh, the minority leader in the Senate uh, with uh, uh, Senator McConnell and uh, House uh, Speaker McCarthy, because we're seeing that now play out at the this end of year thing where the, in the Senate, uh, Senator McConnell would just want to get this done and get it over with, whereas in the House, since they're going to be uh, switching to Republican control next year, they would like to uh, delay any sort of long-term, uh, meaning one year, uh, kind of uh, resolution to this uh, to this budget thing and punt it into the next year. So, so it's the bipartisanship. What we've always talked about and we've always championed is uh, is a goal. But sometimes, right now, you wonder if even the parties themselves are going to be able to come out with any unified uh, approach. And I think it'll be fascinating to watch. That is a, that is a good point. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like in a tournament, you know, the semifinals or something, who's going <laughs> to, mm. who are you going to get in the finals? Mm -hmm. um, well, Tori, that, uh, what Av and Chris have sort of set up for you, one of the, the uh, defining questions of uh, 2023 you know, um, you've you've talked about it before, but th there are opportunities and challenges. Um, how how would you phrase it? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that question. So I'm gonna compromise compromise or gridlock. I mean, what are what? Are uh, the I see what you mean. Yeah. Um. So I, I honestly I I, I hmm. let me let me answer the question this way. Um, I think that the Republican conference is so fractured right now that even if uh, McCarthy is uh, elected speaker, I don't think he's going to be speaker for very long because in order to get, you know, must pass legislation across the floor in the House, he's going to have to make deals with Democrats. And if he does that enough times, um, the, the rest of, you know, conservative MAGA flank of the Republican Party is going to boot him and there'll be a, a different speaker. Um, so I think there will be, you know, bipartisanship when there needs to be bipartisanship, which is, you know, funding the government, even if it's just on a full year CR, you still need bipartisanship on a full year CR when you have divided government. Um, there's going to have to be bipartisanship on some sort of debt limit. I don't want to call it a fix, but they're going to have to address the debt limit in some way. They can't not do it. So, yes, there's going to be partisanship. Um, or bipartisanship, excuse me. 
Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of gridlock and I think there's going to be a lot of gridlock within the House Republican conference. Mm -hmm. So to me, you know, the, the, the culmination of that is if, if, if McCarthy gets the gavel and that's a big, if I'm not even sure he's going to get the gavel, if he gets the gavel, he's not going to have it for very long. Hmm. Well, uh, that'll be an interesting thing. Um, (laughs) I that's but I think that's about all the time we have for uh, this year end review and our look forward. I want to thank the entire Congress Coalition staff for appearing on today's program of Harris Communications Director, Chief uh, Economist Steve Robinson, Field Director Phil Smith, Deputy Director Chris Culligan, and uh, Policy Director and frequent co host of this program. Tori Gorman. Uh, This is Bob Bixby. And stay tuned because in the upcoming segment, Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I will be discussing a seasonally appropriate theory called the Two Santa Claus Theory of the Federal Budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we'll talk Santa Claus. We're going to be talking with uh, Chief Economist Steve Robinson and Policy Director Tori Gorman. Now, how does Santa Claus relate to the federal budget? Well, you may not know this, but there is something that's been kicking around for a few decades now called the Two Santa Theory of the federal budget. And, uh, you know, we've we've, uh, actually some some of us have been thinking about whether there's a third Santa, but but Steve, um, let me go back to you first, uh, just for uh, background on what is this theory of two Santas in the federal budget? <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the two Santa theory is actually attributed to a, a former Wall Street Journal columnist uh, named Jude Wininsky. And back in the mid 70s, he wrote a column in which he sort of outlined the history of the uh, development of, of spending and taxing and the positions of the, of the Democratic and Republican Party. And he, he sort of went back through the history of how the views of each of the parties have sort of changed over time. Uh, for example, he, he talks about uh, President Coolidge in the 1920s uh, reducing taxes you know, as a Republican. And uh, of course, then then uh, President Hoover came along and you had the Great Depression and he actually increased taxes and he, he played the role of Scrooge. And then <laughs> FDR got elected and he increased spending and he played the role of, of Santa Claus. And so you had this sort of political jockeying between the parties as to who would be the Santa Claus. And the Democrats were the spending Santa Claus and the Republicans were the tax Santa Claus. And this policy and this sort of evolution of, of positions, you know, changed over time. And you eventually got to the point where in the 1960s, the the Democratic Party took on the role of both Santa Clauses. You know, under President Kennedy, we cut taxes. Under President Johnson, we had the Great Society. And under the Republicans, they were in the minority at the time. They were basically saying, oh, no, 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 we have to balance the budget. We're going to play Scrooge. We want to, we want to raise taxes and cut spending. I mean, and and so of course they they were out of power in Congress or certainly in the House for for nearly forty years as a result. And Jude Wininsky came along and said, "Look, you know, the Republicans are are being dumb for for playing Scrooge, and they need to take on the role of Santa Claus." And so you know, in his vision through the eighties, 
you had the or 80s and 90s, I guess, you know, you had the Republicans playing the tax cut Santa uh, because there was always, you know, they were always supporting tax cuts. And then you had the Democrats playing the role of spending Santa uh, because they uh, they wanted to increase spending. And so essentially the idea was, you know, they wanted to, to, to give gifts to the, the, to the population in the form of higher spending on, uh, you know, programs that everybody likes or in the case of giving people tax cuts so they can keep more money to spend on their own. So you had this political competition and as a result, of course, the deficits increased throughout the period. Uh, uh, well, I guess up until President Clinton, we managed to briefly because of the peace dividend and strong economic growth, we actually did balance the budget briefly for a very short period of time. But since then it's been, you know, the two Santas competing once again and uh, how much they can spend uh, under Bush and Trump and Biden and, and, and cut taxes and increase spending. So oh, one, of the, one of the problems uh, that uh, our colleague Gene Sterley at the uh, Urban Institute points out is that even the original theory of the two Santas that Jude Winitsky uh, premised wasn't that there would be two Santas at the same time. You would either have <laughs> the spending Santa or the uh, you know tax cut Santa and you know the Democrats were supposed to raise taxes to offset their Santa spending, and the Republicans were supposed to cut uh, uh, spending and keep things relatively in line. But um, yeah, I mean, you 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 do have this theory that tax cuts don't have to be paid for because they pay for themselves. But then, like during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, you you reach probably the crescendo of big tax cuts and big spending increases at the same time, two Santas at once. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, um, no one wants to play the role of Scrooge because, you know, Scrooge isn't very popular. <laughs> no, and Scrooge doesn't win elections. And the problem is that, you know, once the Republicans decided to stop being, you know, the Scrooge on the spending side, then, then you really had no concern for deficits. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of what's been out there. That I don't know how we get back to that, uh, any sort of a uh, theory. But um, I wanted to, to read something that uh, Gene Sterley sent me because he, he's he been looking at this uh, uh, problem for a long time, these, these two um, theories. And I think it's kind of interesting because Gene puts it in terms of you know, how the budget has evolved. And he says in the early, in the 1960s and early post-war era, I'm quoting now from Gene Sterling, most spending was discretionary. So the long-term budget was more than balanced because revenues increased faster than GDP. Uh, so Santa didn't have, uh, Santa did have opportunities to deliver both tax cuts and spending increases that were in a sense already paid for by the declining debt to GDP ratio. And the Democrats and Republicans pushing for their spending and their tax cuts weren't busting the budget, even if their theories were off base. But, Gene continues, in the modern era, most spending is on autopilot. It's mandatory. It grows forever faster than GDP. And Santa then has no opportunity to simply cut taxes or increase spending without ever growing borrowing. The job of Congress is to renege on past promises uh, to restore some balance. And so that's really the political dilemma that you were talking about is that, you know, even, even if the two Santa theory had some uh, legitimacy way back when, 
the budget has changed so much that so much of our our future revenues are predetermined that you really don't have that flexibility to be giving away anything. What you're giving away is stuff that has to be paid for by your kids, which yeah, seems I mean, to be very it, much at odds with Santa. Yeah, the budget's actually changed in another way. In addition to on the spending side of moving from discretionary to mandatory, um, as, as folks may remember, um, prior to the 1980s, the tax code was not indexed. And so you used to have what they call bracket creep. In other words, as inflation increased income, people would be pushed into higher tax brackets and so they would pay more taxes. So Congress could routinely cut taxes simply to prevent taxes from going up. In other words, by, by mitigating bracket creep on an occasional basis, they were able to give tax cuts, but then bracket creep would start once again and reclaim the revenue. So in a sense, they were able to, you know, it's a self-fulfilling sort of uh, process where you cut taxes and then bracket creep raises them and then you cut them again. And so it's, it's just like the seesaw where since the 80s, when we index the tax code, that additional in, in income from inflation is no longer available. And, so and it's that already it spoken harder. for. I mean, yeah, and, it may, that makes it harder the on, do, the, on yeah. the tax side, right? Um, Tori, what, what is your take on this Santa Claus stuff? <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, for, for years now, uh, I've been a huge proponent of bipartisanship because I thought that, you know, the only durable sustaining law is, is bipartisan law, bipartisan created law, because it usually meant that we had Republicans and, and Democrats at the table talking about what they wanted, what they needed and making trade-offs, right? And the problem I think that we have now is that under the current uh, definition of bipartisanship, it fits very much into this, this two Santa Claus theory, where you've got one set of Santa Claus sitting on one side of the table, the Republicans, the other side of, of the table is your Democrats. Uh, the, your, there's those, that's your second set of Santa Clauses. Instead of, of negotiating back and forth about what we really want, not what we need, uh, everybody wins and they call it a bipartisan bill. And it's, it's, it's a big, you know, it's, it, it's a Christmas tree bill, right? Where everybody's got <laughs> what they want. Um, and we wrap it up in a nice little debt bow and put it underneath the, the, the tree. And I, I know this sounds really strange, but I feel like we need candidates running for office in the next cycle that said, elect me, I'm Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yeah, that would be an odd. Uh, well, in effect, Paul Songus tried to get away with that. He used to campaign on the slogan, I'm not Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't say I'm Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's probably how people uh, took his message. Um, Steve, but before we have we go, there's there's talk of uh, and Gene Sterley uh, specifically mentioned this uh, to me in a conversation about whether or not there's actually a third Santa in town, which would be the Federal Reserve. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's the old uh, adage about the Federal Reserve and the punch bowl, and the argument is that. The, the Fed spikes the punch bowl by lowering interest rates and they have a spiked punch bowl and the party gets going really good and hard and then they take away the punch bowl um, because they have to then, you know, once you lower interest rates and if you, if you cause spike inflation, uh, cause inflation, then you have, to, you have to undo it. And so, yeah, I mean, certainly commentators over, over the years have noted that the role of the Federal Reserve when they're lowering interest rates and easing monetary policy, that is a form of Santa Claus. I mean, they are providing resources to the economy for free through monetary policy. 
And then when inflation gets out of hand, they have to take it back unless they want inflation to continue. And of course, as Jay Powell is discovering, he keeps saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take away the punch bowl and I'm gonna raise interest rates. And everybody says, oh, no, no, you don't wanna be screwed, you'll cause a recession. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the Fed's role in the economy certainly fits in with the theme. And you, you could very well argue that, yes, there have been times when there are free Santa Clauses. It seems to me that the Federal Reserve is trying to correct their Santa Claus problem. Many people would observe that what they're trying to do is, well, not admitting it, uh, force a recession to get uh, inflation under control. That's a very un-Santa-like thing to do. Anyway, here at the Concord Coalition, we take no position on the real Santa Claus. <laughs> There's only one real Santa Claus. What we're talking about here is some phony Santa Clauses down in Washington. So you can go to bed on Christmas Eve reassured <laughs> that we are not casting aspersions right. on the true and real Santa Claus. Bob's giving me a lump of coal in my stocking <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have for this week. So... Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Happy holidays. This is Bob Bixby everyone. with Facing the Future. We'll be back next week.